Uh, this morning we're going to kind of continue a little bit where we left off last week. I felt like um, we were just to lean into some of these issues a little bit more. Not uh, out of just because I had nothing else to say, but because I really feel like there's some things that God wants to press into our lives to imprint upon our hearts as we begin a new year. Not a new year pep talk, but a new year faith talk, because we know that a world in fear needs a people of faith. We know that a world in chaos and crisis needs people who point to Christ. And, and so that's really what God has put on my heart, is to, to instill within us at the beginning of 2022 a, a spirit of faith, a spirit that is different than the world around us. And this morning we're going to be thinking about the Caleb spirit. Would you pray with me briefly as we come to the word of God? Father God, I pray that you would anoint me to preach your word. I pray that you would anoint our hearts to receive our word. And I pray, Lord, that as I speak, you would speak to each one of us and that Christ would be glorified. In his name I pray. Amen. What do you want to be when you grow up? It's a bit late. It's a wee bit late. Although some of us could do, we've still grown up a little bit, couldn't we? Isn't that what people used to ask you when you were a kid? Your parents or maybe people in school or, or family, or you'd see that aunt that you haven't seen in a while at Christmas and she'd say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the wonderful thing about kids is they have no limitations on that. You know, the world is their oyster. They can do anything. I mean, our little boy's nine, and Elijah at this stage has five things on his uh, future career list. He is going to be a zookeeper, an explorer, a YouTuber, a Blue Peter presenter, and a preacher. All at the same time. Um, that's, and that's just at nine, dear knows. Uh, what else? You know, when I was younger, I thought I would be a BMX champion, a martial arts champion. I thought I might be a school teacher at one stage. I thought I might be a lawyer at one stage. I actually uh, had gotten offered to do law at Queen's and turned it down. I hard to believe. Like, but uh, yeah, there was a wee brain in there somewhere. And uh, I decided not to do that. But there was, this, this wasn't one of the things that I thought I would do when I was younger. Um, but it's amazing how when you're younger, you, you aren't limited. And then as you get older, people tell you, think Think a bit more sensibly, you know, be a bit more reasonable, lower the bar a bit. You know, that's never going to happen. You could never do that. And I wonder how many of you, when I ask what did you want to be when you grow up, are actually now doing that thing or have done that thing for those of you who have retired. How many of you actually walked into that thing that you wanted to be? Or how many of you listened to the other voices that told you that you couldn't do it, that you needed to be more reasonable, more sensible and more rational? Because the voices that we listen to will determine the future we walk into. The voices in our lives that we listen to will determine the future that we experience. And that's what we're going to see today as we look at Numbers 13 and 14. And I have titled today A Different Spirit. A Different Spirit. Spirit. Let's read Numbers, uh, just as an introduction, Numbers 14, verses 20 to 24. The Lord replied, Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised an oath to their ancestors. Not one 
who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, he will inherit the promises. It wasn't his education. It wasn't his status. It wasn't his wealth. It wasn't his abilities. It wasn't his gifts. It wasn't his charisma. It wasn't his looks. And it wasn't his background. That God says set Caleb apart and enabled him to walk into the fullness of something that all of the others weren't going to be able to walk into. It was that he had a different spirit. And that different spirit meant that he followed his God wholeheartedly. He had a different spirit. And if his spirit was different, what was it different from or who was it different to? If he was different, why did he stand out from everyone else? We need to go back one chapter to figure that out. Don't have time to read the whole passage in Numbers 13, but many of you will know it. They're on the edge of the promised land. They're actually out of uh, Egypt about two years at this stage. They've wandered through the wilderness. God has led them. They're close to the promised land. And God says, I'm giving it to you. It's yours. And, uh, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to send some people in to do a bit of a recce, reconnaissance mission, to spy out the land. And I want them to come back and tell people what it's like. And so that's what Moses does. It says he picks the leaders of the 12 tribes. These were leaders. I want you to think about that. These were men that people followed. And we're going to see later on that not all leaders are worth following. But these were 12 men that led the people of Israel, the leaders of the 12 tribes. And they go into the land and they spend 40 days away and they come back and they give their report. And look at what it says in Numbers 13, 26, 27. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. They start off well. They come back and they say it's exactly like you told us. God told you that he was leading us into a land flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey were luxuries. They symbolized abundance. They symbolized God's goodness. This was a land where they would flourish. This was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it was sweet. It was full of abundance and provision. It was exactly like God had told them. And they say, here's the fruit. And in verse 23, it says this. It says that they actually, they, they got one cluster of grapes. That's all they could carry back. And two guys had to carry the grapes on a pole between them. Like, they're good grapes. You know, they're big grapes they've got there. Like, that's a big bunch of grapes right there. They're saying this is the abundance of the land. It is good. It is like God promised. And the people are getting excited. But, look at verse 28 and 29. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, 
Amorites and the worst of all, the Cellulites, live on the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Look at that first verse 28. But the people there. But. It's all amazing. But. It's exactly like God said. But. Look at the size of the grapes. But. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But. Have you ever met any but people? You know the sort of mean. The sort who always listen to a possibility but manage to find a problem. They listen to an opportunity but manage to find an obstacle. But people look at the worst case scenario. But people always manage to turn a, a positive into a negative. But you're too young. But you're too old. But we've tried that before. But that will cost too much money. But you're too inexperienced, but, but, but it's too risky. But what if it doesn't work out? But people tend to focus on the burden rather than the blessing. They focus on the downside rather than the opportunity, the problem instead of the potential. Look at verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Caleb's heard enough already. He knows what's going to happen if the but people keep talking. And so it says he silenced the people. Now this was a big crowd here right now at this stage. To say he silenced the people is a nice way of saying he went, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up, everybody! Shut up! I don't want to hear any more of this. We should go up. We can certainly do it. Remember what God said about Caleb. He has a different spirit. They're all saying we can't. Caleb is saying we can. He's a different spirit than the butt people and everyone else because they were infected with negativity. You know, over the last two years, we've talked a lot about infection, haven't we? Talked a lot about stopping the spread of infection. Catch it, bend it, kill it. Wash your hands, sanitize your hands, wear a mask, socially distance, stay apart. We're all about not allowing infection. But can I say to you that there's something that's even perhaps more contagious than a virus? And that is negativity. That is a critical spirit. That is a cynical heart. That is but people who will spread the worst case scenario again and again and again. People who always grumble are highly contagious. And there are some people we should socially distance from. There's some people that we should keep quite a distance from. There's some people that we should delete their numbers. There's some people that we should unfriend them on social media because they're but people. They're people who every time God wants to lead us forward, they pull us back. Every time we have an opportunity, they bring up an opposition. Some people you should avoid getting close to because they're highly infectious with a critical but spirit. I talked about this last week. But the battle is up here before it's out there. That's where the enemy attacks our minds. And here's what butt people do. They drain the faith out of you. 
And they drain the courage out of you. And they drain the life out of you. And they drain the joy out of you. And they drain what God has said to you. And what God has shown you. And they come in with their big butts so to speak, and they drain you and to the point where you start to believe what they're saying because they're very convincing as we're going to see in a minute. Because butt people always have more to say. Caleb has said we can do it, but the butt people have more to say because they always do. Look at verse 31. But the men who had gone up with them said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. Look at what it says. They spread a bad report. Stop the spread. They spread. They were contagious. They were infectious. They start to amp up the fear. Just in case people aren't scared enough yet, it devours those living in it. The people are huge. They're giants. They're putting across the worst case scenario and they're embellishing it just a little bit to convince everyone to see things their way. They're manipulating the facts and figures just to provoke as much fear in the community as possible because fear is possibly the most powerful emotion, especially fear of loss. Psychologists have actually shown this, that our fear of loss is much greater than our possibility of gaining. If you say to someone, if you do this, you may gain this, but you may lose this. The fear of loss is always much greater than any possibility of gaining because fear of loss is an incredibly powerful psychological weapon to control people. If you can put enough fear into a community, they will do almost anything you want if they think that what you're offering will keep them safe. Obviously, this is just talking about this. Enough fear will make you do almost anything. Enough fear will make you afraid of being close to your loved ones. Enough fear will make you scared to leave the house. Enough fear will make you be willing to sacrifice the education and mental health of your children. Enough fear will contain and control you. Enough fear will make you think that excluding a group of people who you deem as risky is justified because it keeps you safe. Fear will keep you silent when you see wrong happening. Fear will keep you compliant even if you don't agree with what's happening. Never underestimate the power of fear. Fear distorts reality and causes you to see yourself, other people, and the world around you, and even God through a certain lens. And that is the lens of fear. Look at verse 33 with me. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. I love that wee bit of musical sort of soundtrack in the background there. Let's see if we can turn the phone off in the next 24 minutes. Yeah, I like it, but I don't love it. Okay, it's making me fearful. Uh, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. We looked 
the same to them. We seemed like grasshoppers and we looked the same to them. Fear will distort reality. The grasshopper in those days was the smallest edible creature there was. And they're saying that's how we seemed. We seemed like food to the people there. That's what they felt like, tiny, powerless, vulnerable, and weak. In our own eyes, in our own minds, in our own hearts, our fear caused us to feel completely overwhelmed and powerless against us. And we looked the same to them. Now they're just exaggerating. We looked like grasshoppers to them. How did they know? What were they, 12 what? Spies. Spies don't go around with a clipboard doing research. You can imagine them starting on the street corner of Canaan, going, just a couple of questions to ask you. Just last one. What do I look like to you? In fact, let me help you. If you were to describe me as one insect... What might it be? Grasshopper? Okay, grasshopper. They're totally exaggerating. They're making things up. Fear has altered their perception of reality. Plus, manipulating the facts like this is really good at scaring everyone else into getting them to do what you want them to do. Let's twist the truth a little to make it fit our agenda. Look at what they say. We saw... And we seemed. We saw and we seemed. We saw and we seemed. But there's no mention of what God said. We saw and it seemed. But they never mention what God said. Maybe this is what they saw. And maybe this is how things seemed. But it's not what God said. And as I said last week, this is not about denying reality. This is not about burying our heads in the sand and pretending that reality isn't there. This is about realizing that there is a greater reality than our reality. There's the, there's the, there's the facts and there's the truth. There's our feelings and there's the truth. And they were going by what they saw and what they felt rather than the truth of what God had said. And here's what their greater reality was. God had supernaturally delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He had sent ten plagues. He had saved the firstborn in their house through the blood of the Lamb. He had led them out with, 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 with blessing and abundance and wealth from Egypt. He had parted the Red Sea before them. They had walked through it. He had drowned their enemies. He had led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He had provided food for them in the wilderness. This is the God who had done everything for them. They had seen miracles. They had witnessed provision. And yet they are saying, we have forgotten what he said. God said, I am giving you this land. It's yours for the taking. Yes, you might have to fight some battles, but the, the result of the battle has already been decided. For I am with you, and if I am with you, you are victorious. But what they felt, the fear they felt, became more dominant in their lives than anything God had done or anything that God had said. And so they said, we can't do this. This is too powerful. We're too small and weak. As I said last week, they have forgotten who they are, the people of God, and they've forgotten whose they are. They belong to Yahweh, the Lord Most High. 
They are the people of God, called by his name, delivered by his hand, who have experienced his provision and power and protection, but they're acting as if God isn't real. They're acting as if they're just like anyone else. They're acting as if their God isn't all-powerful and almighty and supreme and sovereign. And look at what happens in verses 1 and 5 to 10 of the next chapter. Then all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, the last time I checked, they had a leader, Moses. But they don't really like what Moses is saying. They'd rather have a leader who agrees with what they think. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, not son of Anun, it's not a dodgy thing in the Sunday world, and Caleb, son of that person, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite community, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of this land, for we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Fear is so powerful that it will cause you to turn against your friends and your family and your neighbours if you see them as a threat to your safety. Fear is so powerful that they would rather go back to the brutal regime of slavery and oppression in Egypt than walk forward and fight a battle and, and, and hurt the promised land. Because at least as slaves they were safe. It was a miserable safety. But some people would rather be miserable and safe than take the risk and step into what God has called them into. And Caleb and Joshua do their best. They say, the Lord is with us. The Lord will protect us. The Lord will give us the land. But here's the problem. There were 12 spies, but there were only two faith voices. 84% were controlled by fear, and 16% were saying, we can do this. They were a minority, and the majority always seemed to be right. Caleb and Joshua were outnumbered. They were two out of 12. And when 84% of a population are controlled by fear, they just want to get rid of the 16% who aren't, because they're a threat to everyone's safety. And so they talk about stoning them. As Christians, we are a minority. As Christians, we are described in many ways in the Bible. Aliens and strangers, a peculiar people, relevant more to some than others. A peculiar people. That's what it says in Peter. We're salt and light. We're the people of God. We belong to Christ. And we are a minority. And let's get rid of this rubbish about the UK and Northern Ireland being a Christian country. They've never been Christian countries. And if there was ever any semblance of it, it's long gone. This is not a Christian country we live in. Let's not be deluded by that. We are a minority among a people 
who want to live lives according to their own ways, their own morals, their own standards. And they don't mind us believing what we believe as long as we just shut up. As long as we just go with the flow. As long as we just blend in. As long as we're just willing to do whatever they want us to do. And if we don't, then we need to be silenced. And being a minority can be intimidating and it can be scary. And the easiest thing is for us just to go, I just want a quiet life. And so I will just blend in. And I will just be quiet. And I won't speak out. And I will say that's okay even though I don't think it's okay. And I will change my views to blend in with everyone else and what the culture around me thinks. The only problem is you're not like everyone else. The Spirit of God lives within you. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. You were bought at a price. You have eternity with him. You have an identity that's secure. You are a person who follows Jesus Christ, who is called to point people to Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And a culture that says there's many ways to God, we are a people who say there's only one way, and it is through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the life, not one of many ways. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus, and our culture does not like that. All roads lead to heaven. Sure, we're all the same. I'm a good person, as long as you're good. No. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to God. But that takes courage and that takes boldness and that takes faith and that's risky and that's about being willing to be misunderstood and even rejected. And so we have a decision to make every day. What is more important? Is it being rejected by people or is it pleasing God? In a place where we're outnumbered, in a place where we are a minority voice, are we going to keep silent? Or are we going to have a Caleb spirit and say, this is what God says. This is what the word of God says. Are we going to walk in people's preferences? Or are we going to walk in God's purpose? You know, it's sad. I'm nearly done. This could be... A short one this morning. Sorry about that. I don't mean to let you down. <laughs> Not disappointed at all. All right. Thanks for that. Thanks for the encouragement. Next week's sermon is on courage and encouragement. Um, you know, they spent 40 days scouting out the land. They came back and they probably reported for 40 minutes and that led to 40 years in the wilderness. 40 days scouting out the land, 40 minutes reporting back, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. They would rather... See, here's the thing. There was a battle to fight. Okay? There was a battle to fight. When they went into Canaan, there was a battle to fight. They were going to have to take on the Canaanites. But the battle might have lasted how long? Well, actually, we know. Because when they did go in 40 years later, they walked around the walls for six days, and the seventh day the walls fell. The battle would have lasted one week. But rather than overcome their fears and fight a battle for one week, they would rather wander in a desert for 38 more years. 
They would rather die a slow death because all of them died in the wilderness rather than inherit the land except two people, Caleb and Joshua. Why? Because they had a different spirit. Last week I said we need to pick our bottles, didn't I? And there's some people who will pick every bottle. Avoid those people. They're not, they just, they bring you heartache and trouble. And and we need to choose our battles because not every battle is worth fighting. But here's the problem I have found with many Christians. They don't think any battle is worth fighting. And they would rather stay away from the battle and live a life in the wilderness rather than confront certain things and enter into the fullness and freedom of what God has for them. There are some battles you need to fight. Some of you know that. Some of you have been through battles, so you know that. You went through the battle, and it was rotten, and it was stinking, and it was hard, and it was horrible, but you know what? On the other side, you found freedom. And would you, did you enjoy the battle? No, but would you do it again? Yes. Because it was worth it for the freedom. And there's some of us that are putting off battles, we're putting off dealing with situations, we're putting off hard conversations, we're putting off certain things because we don't want the immediate pain, but by avoiding the immediate pain, we're living with wilderness. We're living a slow death. And I would rather, you know, I do, I do many, I used to do a lot more funerals, at one this week, but I used to do a lot of funerals. And, you know, inevitably a family member would get up and say, and they'd say to me privately when I'm around at the house, you know, they never, they never, everybody always had a good word to say about them. Nobody ever had a bad word to say about them. I used to think that was good, and now I just think they were probably really boring. Like, if everybody likes you, You know, when I die, the last thing I want somebody to say is, Craig was nice. (laughs) I don't want that. I don't want somebody to say everybody liked him. That's not... That's not... Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will be persecuted. He said, be careful when all men speak well of you. (laughs) The job of a Christian is not popularity. The job of a Christian is obedience and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And look at the list of names of the 12 spies. Look at the list of names. Shamua, Shaphat, Egal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Nabi and Gul. How many of you here know someone or have named your children or your grandchildren or called any of those names? You do? There's always one, and they're normally American or Canadian. (laughs) You know, I have never done a dedication or a baptism or christening for Shaphat or Gaddy. How many of you here know someone called Caleb or Joshua? Everybody. Why? Because the only names worth remembering are those who have a different spirit. (laughs) The only names worth remembering are those who have a different spirit. Twelve people went into the land. Two of them had a spirit of faith. Two of them said we can. Ten of them said we can't. And the only names we remember, and the only names that are mentioned after this, 
are Joshua and Caleb. And they go into the land and they fight and they win 40 years later. You see, the enemy doesn't go away. And if you don't fight it, it just means somebody coming behind you. Probably your children will have to fight it instead of you. But they go into the land, and I just want to finish with this. It's a passage from Joshua 14. I, think, I love this. I love this. I love this. Joshua 14. I had never connected these two passages before until this week. Now, the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb, and Caleb, and Caleb, and Caleb, son of the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. You know what the Lord said. I'm reminding you what God said. This is 45 years later. I'm reminding you what God said. I was 40 years old when Moses, a servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh to explore the land. And I brought back a report according to my convictions. Not according to my feelings, but according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people sink. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that your children and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since that time, he said to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old, here I am today, and I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. Now that's just delusional at that point, you know. He's flexing his wee wrinkly muscles at this stage. I'm just as strong today at 85 as I was at 40. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron, the hill country, the hill, the mountain, as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb ever since because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. I love that. Don't you love feisty old people? Some of you are feisty old people. (laughs) Don't you love them? I'm 85. Give me this mountain. I'm as strong and as faithful now as I was 45 years ago. Give me this mountain. I am not going to die without inheriting what God has promised me. You know what that says to me? You're never too old. It may not have happened in five years or 10 years or 20 years, but in 45 years, he still said, I am reaching for the promise of God. And remember what they were so scared of, and he mentions it here, the Anakites, the giants. Look at what it says in Joshua 15. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites. Eighty-five years old and he took on three giants. It's never too late. You're never too old. And God had promised him, I will bring you into the land. And it took 45 years. But at 85 years Oh, he is still filled with faith. And he says, give me this mountain. And a world filled with fear needs a church filled with faith. 
And in 2022, we need to be a people who say, God, give me this mountain. What's the mountain? Whatever it is for you. Give me this mountain. Give me your promise. Give me that which you have spoken. Give me what you have prophesied over my life. I am not settling in the wilderness. I am not living in fear. I am pressing forward by faith, and I am taking hold of everything that God has promised. Give me this mountain, for the Lord has promised it to me.